Okay, we're going through 1 Thessalonians, and we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I will read verse 13 to the end of the chapter. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest do who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord." Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The Thessalonian believers put a great deal of emphasis on watchfulness for Christ's return. And if you would have asked uh, one of the believers there in the church in Thessalonica, uh, they would have told you that watchfulness for Christ's return is a central part of the Christian life. It's one of the things that marks out a Christian is one who's waiting for the return of uh, Christ. And they'd be right. They'd be right in that. It is central to being a Christian is waiting for uh, Christ's uh, return. Uh, it's perhaps a neglected part of the Christian life today. And I don't know quite know why that is. Maybe because it's the end times events are somewhat controversial among uh, Christians, perhaps that or uh, some other reason. But uh, waiting for the return of Christ is central to what a Christian is and uh, what a Christian does. So the Thessalonians were right about watchfulness for Christ's return. They were right and they were wrong. They were right in an important way. Watchfulness is central to the Christian life. And they were also wrong in an important way about watchfulness for the Lord's return. How so? How were they, how were they wrong? Well, let me start with this. Let me start with this uh, in explaining why they were wrong uh, about watchfulness for Christ's return. And that is that they found watchfulness for Christ's return to be paralyzing. And they began to neglect their work. And Paul mentions that actually right before this uh, passage. And so their watchfulness for the age to come to begin caused them to neglect the responsibilities of this present age even the most uh, sometimes mundane and boring uh, responsibilities like daily work, responsibilities that are considered sort of uh, un unspiritual. And so their watchfulness became for them a substitute for embracing their God-given responsibilities. In other words, their watchfulness became for them something it was never intended to be. It was never intended to be a substitute for embracing uh, the responsibilities that the Lord has given to you in this present age. Well, we tend to think we've seen something like that before, or at least heard about it, something like what the Thessalonians were doing. You've, you've heard probably of a cult or a cultish uh, group, and they set a date for Christ's return, and then everybody you know, sells their stuff or gives it away, puts on white robes and goes up to the mountaintop and to wait for uh, Christ's uh, return, and you can see how the work would be neglected. Um, after all, why work on a house? or plant a field, or plant a tree if Christ is going to return and uh, take us away. What's the point of uh, doing work in uh, this uh, present age? But I think it's not just that impulse that was at work 
in the Thessalonian church that they had made that calculation. Well, Christ is coming, so I don't need to do work um, today. It's not the only reason they found their watchfulness to be paralyzing. Um, there was something else that was ruining their watchfulness. In fact, something I think at, at the heart of what was wrong with their watchfulness, and it's this. The Thessalonian believers struggled with assurance of salvation. They struggled with assurance of salvation. And so as they watched for Christ's return, they knew he's coming with wrath outpoured, deserved um, uh, by by uh, those who are not, do, do not belong to Christ. They wondered if his wrath might be poured out on them somehow. And so they were watching for Christ's return with a lack of assurance. And that lack of assurance runs throughout both letters of First Thessalonians and Second um, Thessalonians. Let me put it this way. The Thessalonians were assured of salvation to the same extent that they were watching for Christ's return. And so they thought, if I'm watching for Christ's return, I, I can be assured of salvation. And if I'm not watching for his return, then uh, I don't know. I don't know if when he comes back, it'll mean uh, salvation for uh, me. And so uh, their nightmare was that at the moment of Christ's return, that they wouldn't be watching uh, for him and they'd be doomed uh, because of that uh, at that uh, very moment. And that's why they were concerned about those who had died, those who had died in this time past. Some of their loved ones that were part of the church died and missed their chance to be found watchful at the moment of Christ's uh, return. So they were concerned about them. They weren't assured of their uh, salvation because they weren't assured of their those people's watchfulness for Christ's uh, return. Well, let me give this as a, a rule and kind of generalize this uh, a little bit. Let me give this as a rule and, and, and dwell on it uh, for a moment about assurance. When a work becomes your assurance of salvation, you will turn that work into something that it's not. When a work becomes your assurance of salvation, you'll turn that work into something that it's not. Do you agree with that? Let me put put the same thing uh, in a different way, but it's the same thing. When you do something in order to be sure that God loves you, you turn it into something that it's not, that thing. And in some ways, you turn it into its opposite. That's true of all aspects of the Christian life, like the ones he's covered here in 1 Thessalonians so far, purity, or love, or work or watchfulness, or submission, or uh, repentance. Uh, if those things are done in order that you might be assured of his love, God's love for you, instead of as an overflow of his love for you, it actually changes that thing from what God intended it to be to what uh, he never intended it to be. And that was happening with watchfulness uh, in uh, the Thessalonian church. They had turned it into a way of them knowing that God loves them. And they turned it into something totally different from what it was. And it, they found it to be a paralyzing thing that paralyzed their whole Christian uh, life. Doing, obeying, doing something in order to know that God loves you can get a lot done. It's a very powerful motive. Just ask the Roman Catholic Church how much work uh, can be can get done. Or just look at the wonderful buildings, the beautiful buildings that they've built with that motive. So it can get a lot work of work done, just not the kind of work that accomplish that, that accompanies uh, salvation. Now you might say, now wait a minute, we are assured by what we do, because I've read 1 John, 
1 John, and it says that our works assure us. It says uh, this, 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of uh, the devil. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor of the one who does not love his brother. And see, our works do assure us of our uh, righteousness. Yes, in a secondary sense. In a secondary sense. In other words, our works assure us that we belong to Christ, not so our assurance might rest on those works, something changeable, something that that, uh, is able to change, but rather as confirmation from your works, from the fruit that you see uh, in your life to embolden you to rest your assurance on something that never changes, on the word of God, on the promise of God in Christ. And that is never secondary for assurance. It's always uh, primary. In other words, our faith in God's promise is a hard thing, is a fragile thing, is this thing that needs all kinds of secondary supports, including uh, the, the works that we see uh, that are, are done in uh, faith. Uh, that's why John Calvin says, uh, if we should have to judge from our works how the Lord feels towards us, we can in no way attain it by conjecture. But since faith ought to rest on a simple and free promise, no place for doubting is left. The faith and the promise is primary. And uh, the, the works that we see uh, should encourage us uh, to, to rest our faith completely in this. This is why Paul uh, says to the Thessalonians in this very letter as they're struggling with um, assurance in chapter 2 and uh, verse uh, 13, he says, For this reason we also thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The Puritans thought a lot about assurance, and uh, they were wise enough to know uh in fact, this language was included in their uh, great confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in their section on uh, assurance, that God sometimes suffers even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light for a time. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter uh, 50. They meant not that there can be a Christian who bears no fruit. There's no such thing as that. There's no such thing as a Christian who isn't transformed and bears no fruit. But what they meant by that is that there is such a thing as a Christian who can't see any fruit that he's bearing for uh, a time. And if you ever find yourself in that situation, you won't find your way back by denying yourself the assurance of God's love for you until you can start producing fruit before you have uh, assurance. No, you'll find your way back by knowing your assurance that God loves you is based on something that can never change. It's based on the promise of uh, God uh, given to you in the gospel in uh, Christ. So uh, the rule here uh, that I'm, I'm making is that when you do a work in order to have assurance of salvation, you turn that work into something that it is uh, not. The Thessalonians were practicing assurance by watchfulness, Assurance by watchfulness, that's what they were um, practicing. It caused them to forget who they were watching for. It caused them to forget what he was uh, like. It's not your watchfulness for Christ's return that's stronger than death. It's Jesus 
that's stronger than death. It's not your love for him that's stronger than death. It's his love for you that is stronger than death. And so uh, my title um, for this morning's message uh, comes from that. What kind of Lord are you expecting? What kind of Lord are you watching for? And uh, it, the message is meant uh, to remind you, to assure you that Christ saves all of his own. He doesn't lose a single one. Yes, even those who are died, they're not forgotten. When he returns, he saves every uh, single one, and he does that because of who uh, he is. Well, in order for Paul to do that, to give assurance that Christ saves even those who have died, even those who can contribute no watchfulness at the moment of uh, Christ's returns, Paul describes Christ's return and gives a few details in this uh, passage about a future event that we call the rapture, that we call the rapture of uh, the church. And he describes it in such a way with a special focus on those who have died, those uh, believers who have died in the faith and what will happen to them at the moment of Christ's uh, return. The rapture is a, a doctrine that not all Christians agree about. It's controversial among even Bible-believing Bible-honoring uh, uh, Christians, controversial in its timing, that is how it relates to other end-time uh, events, and uh, especially whether it could happen at any moment. Um, and I'm interested in getting into the timing of that event, and I think Paul is too. I think he wanted to straighten the Thessalonians out uh, about that, because I think they had made some mistakes uh, about that. But I'm going to postpone what I, what I have to say about the timing until chapter five, because I think Paul does too. In fact, when you get to chapter five, he says, now as to the times and epochs, brethren. And so he's going to talk about uh, the timing of it. And then, then he begins talking about the day of the Lord, which he uh, talks about in both first and second Thessalonians. So I hope to uh, talk about the timing in reference to the day of the Lord and everything that's part of uh, the day of the Lord. And then we'll look back over what Christ, uh, over what uh, has been taught about Christ's return in uh, Thessalonians uh, from that uh, point. But let me say this. I believe that the rapture can happen at any time. In fact, I believe it could happen even before I'm done speaking before I sit down uh, to speak. So I'll, I'll try not to support that with any uh, arguments, but I'm not trying so hard as to hide what I believe about that. And so if it comes out uh, in, in uh, some of my comments, uh, so be it uh, on that. Well, I don't think I need much of an outline. Um, the, this passage is quite vivid, and so I don't think you'll lose your place. But let me give uh, just two-part outline. First, Paul says that Christ will save those who have died. In other words, he asserts it. And that's in verse 13 and 14. And then Paul explains how Christ will save those who have died, Christians who have died before he comes. And so he describes it in verse 15 to 18. And so let's look at uh, this uh, passage starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest do who have no hope. Paul says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. And that's a, a, a somewhat usual way in which Paul introduces a, a topic. We want you to know. We want you to know. And so that's what he's uh, saying this. We want you to know about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. I want you to know about this 
about those who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. And I'm glad that this verse does not end right after he says so that you will not grieve, period. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It says, I want you to know this about those who have died so that you won't grieve in parting with them as the rest who have no uh, hope. Um, this isn't given so that you won't grieve when loved ones die in the church. We do grieve. We would have to be uh, unfeeling, data-chomping robots to not feel it, to not grieve when we're parted with loved ones uh, through death. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew uh, what was coming. And so Paul doesn't inform us of this about those who have fallen asleep, those who we love, uh, Christians, so that we won't grieve when they die, so that we'll stoically accept it uh, when they die. No, he writes so that we will not grieve as the rest, that means unbelievers, who have no hope. And so just as there's two kinds of watchfulness, one done without any assurance, which turns into something totally other than the watchfulness that the Lord uh, commands uh, and intends, and another kind of watchfulness, one that's informed by assurance, a hopeful uh, watchfulness for Christ's return, and you know it's going to be salvation for you. There's also two kinds of grief. There's a harmful kind of grief without any hope. And that's the only thing that the world has uh, to offer. And then there's a proper kind of grief, a grief that flows out of assurance, a grief that flows out of hope. And that's a grief that's fitting for a Christian. It's fitting for Christ, even to weep tears uh, with that kind of grief. And Paul says, I'm writing this so that you'll have that kind of grief when uh, someone uh, who, who you lo- love, who's part of the church, uh, dies so that you'll grieve with assurance for their salvation instead of without any uh, assurance uh, of them. Paul continues for verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's a couple of ways of stating an if statement uh, in Greek, and uh, one assumes that the condition is true, and that's what this one is. You do believe it. You do believe it. And if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and I know you do, then even so, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Jesus' death, of course, was a first fruits. In other words, he conquered death on behalf of his people. That's what kind of a savior he uh, is. And so Paul says, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, then you're going to see the people who die in Christ. And he'll bring with him when he returns those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. It's interesting that when Paul speaks of a Christian's death, he uses this great euphemism, falling asleep. You know, like a ch- it's a childlike euphemism. That's what happens. A child falls asleep and he's going to wake up the next morning. And that's what death is for a Christian. It's like falling asleep uh, for uh, a Christian. But when he speaks of Christ's death, he doesn't use any euphemism for that. He doesn't say, if we believe that Jesus fell asleep on the cross and rose again, no. He says, if we believe that Jesus died on uh, the cross. And so Christ experienced death to the fullest. Christ experienced death, and death is an unnatural separation. It's a rending. It's a tearing of body and soul. It's a rending of something that should never be torn uh, apart, something that Adam and Eve, when they were created perfect in the Garden of Eden, couldn't even imagine being torn apart. It produces a waste product, so to speak, 
something also unnatural, a body without life uh, in it, a lifeless body, an unthinkable thing. And Christ experienced that. Christ experienced that to the full. Christ really died. He really died. In every sense of that, he experienced everything that death is so that our death might be sleep with the sting removed uh, from it so that it might be a defeated foe when it comes so that uh, Paul would be able to say uh, to Christians and speak of those who have died as those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. There's kind of a paradox, if you'll permit uh, this this uh, word, that a Christian takes death on the one hand more seriously than the world and on the other hand less seriously than uh, the world. Uh, sometimes people in the world just speak of death as a cessation of existence. And they'll say, well, I'm not even afraid to die. It's just going to mean I'm going to cease to uh, exist. A Christian believes on the one hand that death is something far worse than the world imagines because actually it's an indicator that God has wrath towards sinful human uh, beings. And so death is freighted with a terrible meaning, a meaning more terrible than the world uh, can uh, imagine. And yet Christ took all the wrath, all of God's wrath out of death for the Christian in order for it to be sleep for a Christian. And so for us, it's simply falling asleep. And then uh, to wake up again, it's because of what Christ has uh, done. Well, Paul simply asserts here, first of all, he doesn't want them, to, uh, these believers to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with him when he returns those who have fallen asleep in uh, Jesus. In the second part of this passage, Paul describes how Christ will save those who, who have died when he comes. And he starts that in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen uh, asleep. Paul says, I'm going to tell you something by the word of the Lord. And I don't think he's referring back to anything that the Lord um, spoke to his disciples. One of the things that the Lord spoke to his disciples is, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. So the Holy Spirit's going to reveal them to you. Uh, when he comes, he did that through the ministry of the apostles. And uh, this is one of those things. So I don't think Paul's reflecting back on something the Lord said, but he's saying, I'm saying it to you as an apostle. I'm saying it to you, and it's it's the word of the Lord through uh, the Holy Spirit. It's what he's uh, revealed uh, to me. And uh, what is uh, revealed is uh, a way in which, there's many ways in which at the coming of Christ, the first will be last and the last will be first. Uh, but this is one that he tells the Thessalonians. He tells them, you think that those found watching at the time of Christ's return are going to have some kind of advantage. In fact, you know that they're going to be saved and you're not so sure about those who are found kind of unawares at the time of Christ's return, including those who have died. You, so you think those who are found watching are going to kind of have the advantage at uh, Christ's return. And in fact, it's the reverse. In fact, it's the reverse. It's those who have died who are going to be raised up uh, first, who are going to precede. So he says this, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede, will not go before those who have fallen uh, asleep. And uh, so far from being forgotten or lost in the shuffle, those who have died, 
and this will be a bit of a shock to the Thessalonians, are actually going to be first. They're going to be ahead of you, he says, in a way that he's going to uh, explain. And the rest of Paul's explanation about what happens at Christ's uh, return is going to follow those two different groups of Christians at the time of Christ's return, those who have died beforehand and those who are alive and remain at the time of Christ's return. We have uh, many of uh, that number at Trinity. In, the, in fact, it might even be even the amount that have uh, died in Christ and us who are here, who are alive and uh, remain. And so Paul's going to speak about what happens to both uh, of those groups at the very moment of Christ's return. He describes it in a very vivid way, in a way that would stick in the memory of the Thessalonians and stick in our memory uh, as well. So he starts to describe the moment. And he describes that in uh, verse uh, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's a, a wonderful description of the Lord's return. And I love the very first part of the description because it says the Lord himself will descend. One uh, commentator put, put it this way. It's emphatically personal. And your translation will bring that out. The Lord himself, the Lord himself with emphasis on him will descend uh, from heaven with a shout. In other words, when it t- comes time for the Lord to return and to gather up all of his people, all of those who have uh, died in Christ, he's not going to deputize someone to do it for him. He's going to come and do it himself. He's going to come and do it personally. The first time that he came to earth, he came as a sacrifice for sinners, he came in person, he came and accomplished it personally. God didn't uh, appoint uh, an angel or appoint someone else or appoint a creature to be a savior for him so he wouldn't have to get his hands dirty with that. God sent his own son. God himself is a savior. He accomplished it in person. And the second time when he comes, he's going to do it in person too. And so uh, Paul uh, makes that clear here. The Lord himself will descend. The one that you're waiting for, and you've kind of lost sight of who he is, but uh, he himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, and he is the Lord. All authority has been given to him on heaven and earth, and he uses that authority to save and to not lose a single one. So the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now, it gives three descriptions of a sound, and there's a question about how this should be interpreted. Is it three distinct sounds? Is it two distinct sounds or is it one distinct sound described in three ways? And I'm not, I'm not totally sure of the answer to that, but I really lean towards it's one sound and it's described in three different ways. It's described first as a shout. He's going to descend from heaven with a shout. Um, and what's used, to, the word used here is like a war cry. It's a shout of command that's, that's given in other places where it's used often in a, in a, in a, a, a place of chaos where there's something chaotic going on, like horses going wild, and there's a, there's a command given. Uh, in that chaotic uh, situation, it's an authoritative, loud uh, command, and that's what's uh, given here. Then with the voice of an archangel, with the voice of an archangel, and um, the way this is put, it's not the voice of the archangel, it's a voice of an archangel. And I, I think what's meant here, I... I, I possible I'm wrong on this, but this is, what, this is what I think, is I think it's 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 Christ's own voice, but speaking with an archangel voice. An archangel, Michael, uh, the archangel, he's a, he's a commander. He's, he does battle 
and and uh, is involved in an unseen uh, battle and used to giving commands. And so Christ, uh, when he was on the earth, for example, he used many different tones of voice, sometimes speaking with great tenderness, you know, like to uh, Mary Magdalene when she didn't recognize him, Mary, Mary. And he, she recognized him by uh, the tone of uh, his voice. But when he gives this shout, he's going to use his archangel voice, the, the voice that the archangel used when he's in the midst of the battle. And that's the voice that he's going to use here uh, when he comes again. And then uh, with the trumpet of God, with the trumpet of God, and the trumpet is mentioned in a, a lot of uh, places uh, in scripture uh, for giving a, a, a clear signal. And one that rings out even on uh, the battlefield. So I, I think this is—it's really the, the voice of Christ, and it's just, it's uh, described in these three different ways. Uh, the combination should give you uh, a picture of what this will be like. But the idea, I think, is that this event is awaiting one great signal. The judge is standing right at the door. Suddenly, a shout is going to emerge, and then this is going to happen. Um, immediately uh, that it speaks of uh, here. So uh, at the moment of this shout, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. Now they've been mentioned before. They've been mentioned before in verse 14, that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And he's descending. He's going to descend from heaven with a shout, bringing with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And what is he bringing with him? Is he bringing... Uh, their bodies? No, their bodies are here on earth in the grave. He's bringing their spirits with him from uh, heaven. But the dead in Christ will rise first. And what is rising? It's not their spirits. Their spirits are with him. He's bringing their spirits with him. It's their bodies that arise up to meet uh, their spirits. Uh, and this will happen uh, uh, first. And uh, so there's sort of a Convergence, moving in two uh, opposite directions. The Lord bringing with him the spirits of those uh, who have fallen asleep in Christ. For those who have died to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. They're consciously in the presence of the Lord. He's, he's not forgetting them. He's bringing them with him at this uh, moment. And uh, then their bodies uh, will rise and will rise first. In other words, before anything, uh, uh, before uh, anything happens, to those who are uh, alive and remaining, the corpses of those who have died are going to rise from the ground. And so you should imagine, yes, graves torn open, piles of dirt being displaced and moving as uh, the dead bodies of those arise up to uh, meet the Lord in uh, the air. And that's going to happen first before those who are alive and remain. Now, there's not much time all happens in a, in a quick sequence. In fact, it, it says um, uh, it's in the blink of the eye that at the sound of the trumpet, we who are alive and remain are going to be changed into a glorified uh, body. But we have to wait our turn because the first thing that's going to happen is that the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, second, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with uh, the Lord. Uh, this is um, spoken of as the rapture of us being caught up together with them in the clouds. You might ask, well, is, is that word rapture in the Bible? Is that a word that's uh, not not in the Bible? Yes, it is. Uh, rapture, or a word very much like that, is the Latin translation in the Latin Bible of this word caught up. 
um, that you find in verse 17. We who are alive and remain will be caught up. Um, we know that word, um, a raptor is like a hawk or an eagle, and they catch up their prey. You know, so an eagle goes into the water and raptures a fish out of the water, plucks him out uh, of, of the water. Or spoken of in mysticism, like an ecstatic experience where your spirit feels like it's lifted out of your body. It's, it's spoken of as rapture, uh, being caught up. Uh, the Greek word that's here is the word harpazo, and you might hear the word harp. That's how you play a harp, is by plucking up uh, the strings, or even a mythical Greek figure is the harpy. It's an ugly woman and then a uh, half-bird body, and they come and they pluck up people's food and, and uh, this sort of thing. So uh, this is uh, catching up. This is a, a catching up. It's a rapture. Um, and it's, it's here in scripture. All Christians believe in the rapture because we all believe in this verse. It's really the timing of the rapture and how it relates to, uh, other events, uh, that Christians, um, disagree amongst, uh, one another. But, uh, this event, uh, is going to happen. Paul doesn't really talk about what happens next, uh, here or, um, describe, uh, he, he's only describing it in a, a very uh, simple way here. Uh, but he speaks of us being caught up together in uh, the clouds to meet the Lord in uh, to meet the Lord in uh, the air. Clouds are are mentioned um, in Scripture along with uh, the events of Christ's return, also the uh, his ascension, where he was uh, raised up and disappeared into a cloud, and the angels came and said he's going to return just like that. He's coming with. Uh, the clouds. And so the clouds are, are, uh, objects that are partly of heaven, partly of earth, so to speak. They're suspended in midair. And this is going to be, uh, the meeting place for us, uh, who are alive and remain. A generation will be like Elijah or Enoch and never die, but be changed suddenly and, uh, meet, uh, the Lord in, uh, the air. So it's a, a meeting place for the, uh, spirits of those who have died to, come together with their bodies and for us who are alive and remain it's a meeting place for us to meet the lord in uh the air at uh, this moment and paul kind of ends his vivid description at that point kind of at that moment of that uh meeting here and just says this way we will live together with him thus we will ever be with him and uh, different Christians have different ideas. Is Christ going to reign for a thousand years? Is there a seven-year tribulation that's going to take place after this moment? Or just simply the new heavens and new earth being created uh, at this moment? But this is where Paul simply leaves it here and then says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Oh, excuse me. I'm in the wrong. Similar to what I wanted to read. First <laughs> um, uh, Thessalonians 4.18 says, Therefore, comfort one another. Comfort one another with these uh, words. And uh, so he writes this in order that uh, Christians might not grieve without hope. And uh, the comfort is the very word of God, that your grief would be comforted by the very word of God. And so he says, comfort one another with these words. And so when we read these words at a graveside service of another believer, we're, we're we're giving the comfort of a solid hope. There's no hope more solid than uh, the word of, of God. Well, let me, let me conclude uh, with this. Let me conclude uh, with this as we think about 
watchfulness, the right kind of watchfulness, not the wrong kind of watchfulness uh, that the Thessalonian believers uh, were participating in, but the, the right kind of watchfulness, an assured kind of watchfulness, an assured watchfulness that Christ will save you and that we will not miss uh, a single one. And that's uh, the one that we are watching uh, for. Let me ask you this. For the Thessalonian believers, their watchfulness was motivated by fear. That's what made them really watchful for Christ's return. They were afraid to not be watchful. They were afraid that it, what it might mean, that, that uh, he wouldn't claim them when he came, that he wouldn't uh, gather them. And so they were practicing a fear-driven watchfulness. And what they started practicing became kind of a, a mutation of uh, the watchfulness that is commanded for us that should fill us with uh, boldness. So let me ask you this. Should your watchfulness for Christ's return be motivated by fear at all? Should fear be any part of your watchfulness? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Let me, let me, uh, let me read you a passage from uh, Samuel about another event in uh, the sky, one that indicated God's displeasure, where uh, lightning and uh, thunder uh, revealed God's uh, displeasure to uh, the people. First Samuel chapter 12. Uh, and Samuel called to the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And so Samuel said to the people, do not fear. Do not fear. He told them not to be afraid. Do not be, do not fear. And then before he was even done speaking, he told them, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. So the Lord thunders, tells people, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then he tells them, do be afraid. Do be afraid. Only serve the Lord with fear. And so there's a wrong kind of fear. It's a forbidden fear. It's do not be afraid. There's a good fear. There's a good fear that we're to have as well. Only serve the Lord with uh, fear. This is the way the Bible speaks of fear uh, in both of those ways. First John chapter four, verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. That's the wrong kind of fear. It also speaks of fear in, a, in another way too, um, throughout a scripture, a, a wonderful passage on is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. It describes the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And so it speaks of a fear that Christ himself has for the Father, for the Lord. That's a delightful kind of fear. And the spirit of the Lord brings that delightful kind of fear uh, upon him, it, it makes you wonder about the the relationship of uh, the triune uh, God. And so there's a, a wrong kind of fear, and there's a right kind of fear as well. And our, our, our watchfulness for the Lord is to have the right kind of fear uh, in it. You might I might illustrate it uh, this way, these two kinds uh, of fear. One kind of fear, picture yourself standing next to the liftoff of a space shuttle and the, the earth is shaking and you're standing just close enough as you're allowed to witness this and you feel the power of it uh, in your chest and you experience fear. But it's a, it's a delightful kind of fear. 
you know that you're safe from it. You have a huge smile on your face. See, this is, this is the best thing I've ever experienced. I'm going to tell everything, tell everyone uh, about this. And then another kind of fear, you're standing next to something and it's a nuclear meltdown. And you know that it's attacking every cell in your body and poisoning you. You also experience fear. There's no delight in that kind of fear. It's a, it's a, a fear of uh, terror. One is the right kind of fear that we have to the Lord. One is a fear that we're not to have to the Lord. They're both powerful. They both motivate action. Different kinds of fear and both fear. Both are really, really fear and can be described by that. Or another illustration, the, a bridegroom and he sees the bride on his wedding day for the first time. And he has a, a shock of fear because she's, she's beautiful. She's brimming with love. He has this fear. Wow. Could this, could this be uh, for me? That's a fear. It's a delightful kind of fear. Compare that with the fear a husband has. He reads a letter from his wife. says, I'm not sure I love you anymore. I'm not sure I ever did love you anymore. And fear grips his heart. Uh, both are fear. But one is the right kind of fear that we're to have uh, for the Lord, and the other is uh, a fear that we're that's forbidden, a fear that we're not uh, to have for uh, for the Lord. There's a great deal of service that can be accomplished by for the Lord by that by that forbidden fear, that wrong kind of fear with no delight. There's a great deal of watchfulness that can take place based on that fear, or begrudging love, or begrudging obedience. To the Lord, that's all offered to God while in your heart of hearts you wish that he didn't exist. And it actually can't have it otherwise in your heart. But the good news of the gospel, God's free grace to sinners, frees you to fear him with the right kind of fear. A fear that you delight in, the fear of the Lord. And yes, even to fear his coming, fear the coming of Christ with a, a right kind of uh, fear. So that fear of delight, that fear that we have when you're assured of his love for you, that's the real fear of God. That's the beginning of wisdom and not the craven substitute. It's the kind of fear that's mentioned in uh, Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Also, um, in connection with the last day's events, afterwards the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. They'll really experience what it means to fear the Lord, and it's because of his goodness. It's because of his grace. Like the hymn writer said, it's grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It's talking about two kinds of fear. Grace is what teaches the right kind of fear, and it's grace that... Uh, puts away the wrong kind of fear as well. So let this fear drive you to watchfulness, the right kind of watchfulness for Christ's uh, return. So are you watching for Christ's return? And also, are you watching for Christ's return with assurance? Not that he's going to miss some of his own or miss you or miss those uh, who have died, but watching with uh, assurance. Let this delightful fear let this gospel fear that rests in his love because it rests in his word, rests in his promise, drive you not only to the right kind of watchfulness, but to every other obedience and holiness in the whole Christian life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his return. We thank you that he is a savior. We thank you that his grace reigns 
and reigns in the place of sin and transforms. We uh, pray that we might rest in his grace and watch for him in that assurance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.